cantar Pidió papeles y le importó muy poco Si mi familia se quedaba abandonada Pero por eso tenga o no tenga papeles Hay que saber sus derechos para poderse defender No tenemos que mostrar ningún papel No tenemos que decirle nada a nadie Menos a la mira, menos a la mira si la agarran usted ya sabe qué hacer Tenemos derecho de mantener silencio Tenemos derecho de hablarle a un abogado No tenemos que firmar un documento Porque seguro es para la deportación Si vi a la migra ojeando por la calle adelante como si no existiera porque aunque buscan a quien se ve latino persiguen a quien empiece a correr póngase trucha tenemos el derecho de andar sin ninguna identificación sea cordial y no de información que la tranquilidad puede ser su salvación no tenemos que mostrar ningún papel Decirle nada a nadie, menos a la migra, menos a la migra Y si la agarran usted ya sabe qué hacer Tenemos derecho de mantener silencio Tenemos derecho de hablarle a un abogado No tenemos que firmar ni un documento Porque seguro es para la deportación Ay, 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 lucha raza damos cuenta, ahora le hágalo valer, usted también paga impuestos, sobres. Es cierto que es muy bonita la confianza, pero la migra de ella se aventaja, tratando de usar el miedo o la amistad, para así ver qué información le sacan. Solo la unión sabemos que es la fuerza de nuestra tierra nunca nos van a sacar. Tenemos mucho más poder del que pensamos, pronto nos educamos y cambiamos hoy la ley. No tenemos que mostrar ningún papel, no tenemos que decirle nada a nadie, menos a la migra, menos a la migra. Y si la agarran usted ya sabe qué hacer. Tenemos derecho de mantener silencio, tenemos derecho de hablarle a un abogado, no tenemos que firmar ni un documento, porque seguro para la deportación. Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind, 
sagt mir wo die Mädchen sind, was ist geschehen? Sagt mir wo die Mädchen sind, wenn allen sie geschwind, wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je
at the graveyards of the rusty
Morning Mutineers. This is the Labor and Love Show. And you're listening to Mutiny Radio. And we do have a physical presence. We have a studio here at 2781 21st Street, corner of 21st and Florida, right in the heart of the mission. Come on down. It's a true neighborhood community arts center. Come on down to Mutiny and find your voice. My name is Bill Morgan, the B, a.k.a. the B. And this show is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Opening set today. Last one, of course, the city of New Orleans with uh, Willie Nelson and the Highwaymen, Chris Christopherson, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and of course, Willie. The city of New Orleans. And uh, preceded by Joan Baez singing, singing uh, Zakmi Vodi Blumensin. I played that one for Jose. A.K.A. Manoli. Hope you're listening, Jose. That one was for you. And number one, as our country doubles down on its terroristic treatment of its own people and of people coming, looking for shelter, looking for asylum because of conditions in their countries that have been augmented by U.S. foreign policy. They come here and they're treated like fugitives from American law. They're treated like interlopers, like bums, like garbage. Their children are thrown into cages Oh, God. Anyway, we could get into that. The Shame of America. Saber Ante la Migra is Francisco Herrera's song, which is kind of like a a, uh, document. Not only is it a song, but it's a document telling people what they can do or what they're required to do and not required to do if they're stopped by the Migra, by the ICE. Ah, okay, we we get into this. And of course, all these things are labor issues. People come to this country for a better life, which means a good job, a living wage. Whereas in their own countries, they're being terrorized. They come here and they're terrorized as well. Just read that a guy who uh, had served two tours of duty in, in Iraq 
was uh, deported. This is one of those periodic times in American history where we turn around, where white people turn around and blame the ills of America on people who aren't white. In the 30s, they deported people, half a million American citizens were deported because somebody thought they were Mexicans. And that's happening again now. Mr. Trump has created a crisis. He and his following believe that immigrants, which have always been the strength of America, a nation of immigrants, John F. Kennedy's book was, that that's a problem now, that there's an invasion happening. People are coming here. And what's going to happen? They're taking American jobs, which has always been proven to be absolute BS. Okay, this is Labor and Love Show. Don't start me talking, said uh, <laughs> Sonny Boy Williamson. I'll tell everything I know. Okay, what do we got? YouTube. I'm going to look today. Do all Muslim women wear a hijab? And about our ignorance as far as Islam is concerned. Islam and Muslim people. The shame of the nation. The 1% rules and 99% lets them. Ralph Nader article. The UAW strike. What's happening with that? Some 50,000 workers are out on strike against GM. We've got a radio labor feature with labor news from all over the world. And I want to play a couple of songs, like uh, most of you probably have been watching the uh, country and western country music documentary by uh, Ken Burns. And uh, there's all, there's, you know, this kind of... uh, Country music has this reputation being apolitical or very conservative, right-wing. And that's just not true. I've got a couple of uh, examples of that from Merle Haggard and uh, Loretta Lynn. Only You by the Platters, a request. Whatever happened with the AT&T strike? Communication Workers of America settled that strike. Athletes getting paid for their work? What? Huh? We can't have that. Dave Zirin reports on a new California law that will allow college athletes to profit from the use of their images. It's like the end of the world, huh? <laughs> As I said, we're going to have Loretta Lynn singing the Pearl. 
and labor history in two minutes. I'm going to look up working class history, too. But right now, let's listen to Radio Labor. Labor events and campaigns from all over the world. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 4th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a California Supreme Court ruling says gig workers are employees. Climate change and the future of work. The five lies corporations tell about unions and singing. We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll, we're gonna roll the union on. We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll, we're gonna roll the union on. This is Radio Labor. All over the world, employers are classifying their workers as so-called independent contractors. Companies such as Uber argue that they are simply providing a computer app which brings together drivers and clients. However, more jurisdictions are starting to question this relationship. For example, in California recently, the state's Supreme Court tackled the issue. Its ruling will have implications not only for the United States, but other countries as well. Tim Schlittner of the podcast State of the Unions, produced by the AFL-CIO, interviewed one of the lawyers who has been working on the issue. We are very honored to be joined today by an associate law professor at UC Hastings, Vina Dubal, whose work was cited in a California Supreme Court case that is changing the nature and the shape of the debate about what constitutes employment. Drivers at Uber and Lyft now have the potential in California and possibly beyond to be classified as workers and have the rights that come with that designation. So, Professor Dubal, why don't we start with the decision from the California Supreme Court that sort of started this debate? What was that case all about and what did the California Supreme Court decide? Yeah, so that case was almost a decade old. It was about delivery drivers. And the Supreme Court of California looked at the facts and they said, these drivers don't have any entrepreneurial opportunity. They're almost completely controlled by the hiring entity and they are low wage. They're subordinated in relationship to the company. And so they aren't independent in any way, shape or form. But the fact that we're in this moment in which we're all talking about independent contracts in gig work, the Supreme Court said we're tired of having the ambiguity, the gray area where the law was before in terms of whether or not someone was an independent contractor, and so we're going to make this very clear. So they clarified the trust for who is an employee for this offline company. And the ramifications, of course, go beyond that particular company to all of the companies in California who try and get out from under employment and labor law protections by misclassifying their workers. So they cited your work in that case, and it was a standard or a test that you put forward. What do you believe is the test of what constitutes an employee? been a question that legal scholars have been going back and forth over since the 1970s. We think we know an employee when we see one, but it's been very hard to capture in legal tests. 
And part of the reason it's so hard to capture, I think, is because the notion of an independent contractor for an employment and labor law purpose was really invented by companies in the aftermath of the New Deal. After the Great Depression, we passed all these new New Deal laws to protect workers, and companies said, oh, you know what, we're going to borrow from this other area of law, tort law, and we're going to take the concept of an independent contractor and we're going to push for it to be in employment and labor laws. I don't think anyone really looks at an Uber driver and thinks that that person has any power in relationship to the company or that that person shouldn't be getting at least the minimum wage. But companies have tried to make arguments like that since at least the 1950s after Taft-Hartley passed. And so what I and others have argued is that in order to really simplify this legal test for who is an employee, in order to better capture who is a worker subordinated to their employer and who deserves employment and labor law protections, that person, if they are doing exactly what the company is doing, if the company isn't anything without that worker or without workers who do what the worker does, then they should be considered employees. So the test that the California Supreme Court adopted that I discussed in my work is called the ABC test. And it incorporates the traditional common law test that the worker has to be free from control. And it adds on the B prong, which says that if the worker does what the hiring entity does, then the worker is not an independent contractor. In this case, the question is, well, do Uber drivers do essentially what Uber does? And yes, Uber is a transportation company, and therefore Uber drivers are employees. During the week that young climate activists confronted world leaders at the United Nations in New York, I talked to the head of the International Labor Movement's Just Transition Center, Samantha Smith. I began my conversation with Ms. Smith by asking her about the future of work. The topic has been given increased attention in the labor movement recently because of a report by the UN's International Labor Organization, the ILO. Yes. Well, I think... So first of all, the ILO has, has, as you mentioned, has has concluded the big project with a a commission uh, to look at the future of work and what that means for jobs, social protection, a range of issues. But of course, also, almost all of our federations are looking at, at what automation and digitalization are going to mean for workers in the future. And... I, personally, I, I, I like the way that the Building and Woodworkers International uh, Federation, the way that they talk about this, because they don't talk about future of work. They talk about workers in the future. So what, what are our jobs going to work like in the future? Um, how many jobs are there going to be? What new skills are people going to need? What do you need in a job or an industry that is going to, is going to have a lot of automation and digitalization? And the answer to that is that it's pretty closely connected to the things we need for just transition. So you need workers and unions to be at the table when you're planning for change, if you're an employer or government. You need social protection, so income support, health, pension, all of the things so that people can lead lives of dignity, including decent public services, access, you know, education, and so on. Um, you need high-quality jobs, decent jobs, as they would say in the ILO, and you need skills and retraining. And with those things, the labor movement is used to change. We're used to industrial transition. We're not afraid of technology. Um, 
but you need to you need to plan for technology change and you need to manage it so that people don't get don't get caught out. So our view increasingly is that the same things that we need in order to manage this response to climate change so that it's actually good for people are the things that we need to manage this response. What is the Just Transition Center, and what does it do? We were set up by the International Trade Union Confederation and its European counterpart, the European Trade Union Confederation, after the Paris Agreement on Climate Change was negotiated. Because that agreement, um, after you know, 20 years of advocacy by the labor movement, actually refers to just transition and the imperative of decent jobs. Um, so we were set up to, to help our federations and their members get concrete agreements and plans for just transition. Don't believe the corporate lies. That is Robert Reich, a professor of public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. He was the U.S. Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. He describes the lies corporations use to denigrate unions and stop unionization drives. Wealthy corporations and their enablers have spread five big lies about unions in order to stop workers from organizing and to protect their own bottom lines. Know the truth. Lie number one, labor unions are bad for workers. Wrong. Unions are good for all workers, even those who aren't unionized. In the mid-1950s, when a third of all workers in the United States were unionized, wages grew in tandem with the economy. That's because workers across America, even those who were not unionized, had significant power to demand and get better wages, hours, benefits, and working conditions. Since then, as union membership has declined, the middle class has shrunk as well. Line number two. Unions hurt the economy. Wrong. When workers are unionized, they can negotiate better wages, which in turn spreads the economic gains more evenly and strengthens the middle class. This creates a virtuous cycle. Wages increase, workers have more to spend in their communities, businesses thrive, and the economy grows. Since the 1970s, the decline in unionization accounts for one-third of the increase in income inequality. Without unions, wealth becomes concentrated at the top, and the gains don't trickle down to workers. Line number three, labor unions are as powerful as big business. Wrong. Labor union membership in 2018 accounted for 10.5% of the American workforce, while large corporations account for almost three quarters of the entire American economy. And when it comes to political power, it's big business and small labor. In the 2018 midterms, labor unions contributed less than $70 million to parties and candidates, while big corporations and their political action committees contributed $1.6 billion. This enormous gulf between business and labor is a huge problem. It explains why most economic gains have been going to executives and shareholders rather than workers. But this doesn't have to be the case. Line number four. Most unionized workers are in industries like steel and auto manufacturing. 
wrong again. Although industrial unions are still vitally important to workers, the largest part of the unionized workforce is workers in the professional and service sectors, retail, restaurant, hotel, hospital, teachers, which comprise 59% of all workers represented by a union. And these workers benefit from being in a union. In 2018, unionized service workers earned a median wage of $802 a week. Non-unionized service workers made an average $261 less. That's almost a third less. Line number five, most unionized workers are white, male, and middle-aged. Some unionized workers are, of course, but most newly unionized workers are not. They're women. They're young, and a growing portion are black and brown. In fact, it's through the power of unions that people who had been historically marginalized in the American economy because of their race, ethnicity, or gender are now gaining economic ground. In 2018, women who were in unions earned 21% more than non-unionized women. And African-Americans who were unionized earned nearly 20% more than African-Americans who were non-unionized. Don't believe the corporate lies. Today's unions are growing, expanding, and boosting the wages and economic prospects of those who need them most. They're good for workers. Now here is Union Nation with We're Gonna Roll the Union On. We're gonna roll! Nation is a musical group organized by the International Association of Machinists, the IAM. And that's it. International labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Radio Labor there, and I hope uh, everybody took note of that 
ruling. Um, there's sort of a duel going on now. NLRB, which is Trump-dominated, says that uh, Uber drivers and gig workers are independent contractors. Whereas this woman is saying, uh, going along with the California law, that they're not independent contractors, they're employees. And the test, one of the tests is, do they do the same work as Uber? In other words, if I'm an independent contractor, Uber might hire me to to help buy a fleet of cars or uh, do something to help their company. But if I'm doing the work of the company, which is to pick people up and take them places, uh, then I'm an employee. So that California law, keep your eye on it, because this is, a, uh, this is an important issue for right now as, as big parts of the economy shift over to uh, these flash jobs where you might work for an hour. And, of course, what companies want to do is they want to have you work for just the bare amount of time. They don't want to have to, anything to do with you aside from that labor that you do them. So they could put out an ad or put out an, a message you know, to the whole gig community, which is worldwide, and say, okay, we need someone to do this translation for us. Uh, we'll pay you for an hour or two hours or whatever. That would be negotiated. And then you're gone. You just do that job and you're gone. And you're back out of work again. Whereas, of course, as workers, what we want is some kind of security. Something we can take forward and plan on. You know, if you want to have a, a family or you want to have a decent life afford a place to live and food and uh, extras for yourself. Think of a retirement. What's going to happen when you retire? Well, companies don't want any part of that. They want you for the amount of time, period, and that's it, and get to stepping. Okay, so that was a radio labor report. And uh, let's see, that, that was roll the union on. And how about something from the low tide drifters? Um, The Low Tide Drippers per perform folk songs rooted in the regional and working class history of the Pacific Northwest with a host of traditional instruments, sing-along choruses, and carefully crafted lyrics. They bring a respect for the past and a concern for the future to their particular brand of music for the rest of us. See if we can get one up here.
a low tide drifters new hard time blues
was uh, the new, what did we get? The Low Tide Drifters, a group uh, from Portland, Oregon. And they played uh, their new Hard Time Blues and the classic, the St. James Infirmary. Okay, this is the B. You're listening to the Labor and Love Show. And um, let's take a look here. The UAW strike. And this is from the Detroit Free Press. UAW strikers in Texas watch Detroit as union leaders meet with GM. One pundit said that the real, the real uh, cause of the strike is the future of electric cars and how that's going to change the workplace. Some 1,200 miles south of Detroit, several thousand UAW workers in Texas are intently watching daily for any news from the Renaissance Center. Negotiators for the UAW and General Motors have been holed up in the Rensen and bargaining discussions since GM's contract with the union expired on September 14th. That prompted about 46,000 union members to go on strike nationwide against GM two days later. 5,000 of those workers are in Texas. On Friday, Terry Diddy's, the UA, UAW's lead negotiator with GM, told strikers the two sides had made good progress regarding the issues of health care and a path for temporary employees become, becoming seniority members. Work remained, he said, on wages, job security, and other manners, matters though temp workers and health care are known to be key issues. Some analysts estimate the strike has cost GM about a billion dollars so far, while workers are getting only their UAW strike pay of $250 a month. $250 a week, I'm sorry. Labor leaders in Texas say UAW members are committed to the strike. We were one of the plants with a higher percentage of members authorizing the UAW to go on strike, said Ken Hines, shop chairman at UAW Local 276. Nobody wants to strike. 
we felt it was necessary to win back some of the concessions we gave up during the bankruptcy, bankruptcy period. Now, you'll see this over and over again. Uh, around the time of the Great Recession, when the bankers sold us all down the river, <laughs> and then we bailed them out. Um, companies would ask their unions and their workers for concessions. You know, can you forego this cost of living increase or can you take a 10% pay cut or can we have a temporary two-tier system? All these things were on the table and in many cases the unions did. The unions did go ahead and take those hits. And now they're saying, okay, now things are better. Your profits are way up. How about giving us back some of that that we gave up to you? That has a lot to do with it. So keep an eye on that. The uh, UAW strike. And let's see. We don't need the low tide drifters anymore. The AT&T strike. Union claims unfair negotiating practices. More than 20,000 AT&T workers, this is in August, in nine southern states went on strike over the weekend, saying that the telecommunications company isn't bargaining in good faith over a new contract. The union says AT&T isn't sending negotiators who have the authority to make decisions. When asked whether there will be service interruptions for customers, AT&T said that it's prepared to strike. Okay. And then the next day, August 28th, this was a big strike. This was 20,000. 20,000 workers. Um, okay. There won't be, and when they did settle the strike, Communications Workers of America released the terms of its tentative five-year agreement. So AT&T settled right away, the four-day strike. The two sides reached a handshake agreement last Tuesday. They've been committed throughout this process to reaching a fair agreement. Out of respect for the union... We are not commenting on terms of the agreement in principle until the union leadership has had an opportunity to share details. It was AT&T spokesman Jim Kimberly. A new agreement included wage increases of 13.25%.
pension and 401k plan enhancements, improved job security, and additional customer service positions. Plus, there won't be an increase in the health care cost-sharing percentage for the life of the contract, and employees will have the ability to contribute to a health savings account via payroll deductions. Okay, so that was a, that was a big message. That was a big uh, victory for labor. It kind of snuck past me. I'm not sure uh, how that happened, but I wanted to review that. All right, let's take a look at the uh, labor beat. And then we'll get some music in here. Ten reasons we're against unions. <laughs> okay. Ten reasons we're against unions. Why are we against unions? <laughs> um, these are the reasons people give. Workers give. Number one, I prefer having no power. Unions just want to line their own pockets, unlike bosses who have only our interests at heart. Number two, other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, pension plans, higher wages and sick leave, what good have unions ever done? Good question. Number three, I deserve less pay than men, says a woman, an anti-union woman. I deserve less pay than men. Here's a man with a hook and uh, eye patch saying, I wouldn't want the company losing money, wasting money, making my job safer. Number five, speaking objectively, all unions are evil. Number six, I want the right to work. Along with the right to be arbitrarily fired. <laughs> Number seven, who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? Number eight, it's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only business should get to do that. This is a big laugh. When you hear conservatives, right-wing, anti-union people saying that labor has too much of an influence the amount spent by unions in, in political action committees is like $660 million, where $3 billion for uh, corporations. Number nine, one day I'll get rich and then I'll be the boss. Once that happens... 
I won't want some union getting in my way. This is one that I think is pretty, pretty uh, extensive. People think that someday they're going to be the entrepreneur, right? They're going to hit it big. They're going to have an idea. They're going to be in the right place at the right time. And they're going to be millionaires and billionaires. By the way, there are way more billionaires around here per, you know, population than anywhere else in the world. And finally, who'd want more power at work? I just want to do my job and get out. I don't have time to get involved in union politics. Well, then you deserve what you get, huh? All right. Here's Francesca Fiorentini. Francesca's talking about, can America let go of being number one? We know from fact-based, stat-heavy, well-researched, peer-reviewed studies, America isn't actually number one in the world, or the best. Unless best here is in reference to Melania's anti-bullying slogan, be best, in which case, it kind of works. And yet, we cling to the idea that we're the best, that everything we do in the world is for the good of it, and that we're the world's role model. It's often referred to as American exceptionalism. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and today we're looking at this national myth of being the best, whether it's time to let go of it, and what it would mean if we ever did. To break it down, let's look at what American exceptionalism is, where it comes from, how we've actually been losing power and influence around the world, and how our leaders have dealt with that reality. First, what is American exceptionalism? You might not be familiar with the term, but you're definitely familiar with its noises. America is the greatest country in the world. We know this is the greatest country on Earth. We're the greatest country ever, and it's a fact. This is America, the greatest country on planet Earth. The greatest country in the history of man. And woman. What an adorable afterthought. Hey, thanks, Nikki Haley, for challenging the patriarchy. But not too much. American exceptionalism is the Regina George of geopolitical ideology. It's the we're hot, you're not, deal with it belief system that says, sure, we've got deep-seated emotional problems, a traumatic childhood, and our friends are only our friends because they're afraid of us. It doesn't matter because everything we touch is amazing. It's only cool when we do it. And like, do you even go here? Just take it from the Regina George of newscasters. Well, the left is never going to understand American exceptionalism because they don't believe in American exceptionalism. But I don't know about you guys. I believe we live in the greatest nation on the face of the earth. I believe that we are a beaming light for the rest of the world. And for those who feel otherwise, there are 195 other countries. So I suggest they go pick one. Yeah, but I want California without you or Mel Gibson. Should we just rock, paper, scissors or do we have to fight? Thing is, when Americans say we're number one, it doesn't exactly come from here. It comes from here. And not just because we rank super high in heart disease per capita. It's mostly just a slogan we repeat and that the right uses to test our loyalty to the country we live in and attack anyone trying to make it better, which is the equivalent of shaming a firefighter for trying to put out a fire in your own home. Love it or leave it, asshole. I love the smell of toxic smoke in the... 
So where does the idea of American exceptionalism come from? Some say it has to do with our founding and our constitution, which guaranteed equality to all. Of course, the country was founded through the violent takeover of Native American land and enslaving Africans to help build us into a global economic superpower. Look, it was aspirational. But a more recent moment that has deeply shaped our exceptionalism was when the U.S. entered World War II and helped allied countries defeat Nazism. Sure, we showed up late in Europe. Kind of how your period shows up late. Little scary, and then there's way too much blood, but ultimately, relief. After the war, and in part thanks to it, America emerged as the world's main economic superpower. We were helping other countries rebuild, and in turn, they had to buy our goods. America basically became the world's pushy Tupperware lady that no one could say no to. And if you like that dip and serve tray, you might also like this F-16. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, well, it all went a bit to our heads. You could say we finally won the dick measuring contest. Er... Space race. So there we were, the victors of the world, with the cash and the glory, and all that helped fuel our illusion of American exceptionalism. And that's usually where the action movie ends, because no one wants to know what happens after Rocky wins. He gains a lot of weight, goes bankrupt, and keeps getting food poisoning from eating raw eggs, which he can't remember gives him food poisoning because he also has CTE. There, I said it. Or in America's case, we expand our military around the world, kill millions by getting involved in military conflicts from Central America to Vietnam under the Cold War ideology of stopping communism, embrace free market policies that end up ruining our workforce and that of other countries, and oops, who knew all that foreign intervention would lead to crazed murderers who want to kill Americans, and they do, and instead of reassessing our response, we invade two more countries that had nothing to do with it, well, one we invade again, and throw trillions of dollars at counterterrorism only to still be fighting in Afghanistan, the never-ending war which just turned 18. And that means it's old enough to fight itself, okay? And yes, somewhere in all that, Prince released Purple Rain. And for a moment, things were good. And maybe behind all of our problems is that pig-headed ideology called American exceptionalism. This word exceptionalism, which has been repeated throughout American history, that we are the exceptional country, uh, that at this point, I think, makes us a, a danger to ourselves. American exceptionalism is a bit like the curse of the monkey's paw. You know, every time something amazing happens, it also has horrible consequences. You're going to have a new nation with brilliant founders, but they'll own slaves. You're going to win a great world war, but you'll start dozens of others. You'll get your first black president, but... Your next president will be a crumpled Fritos bag with a turd inside. Our American exceptionalism has made us a danger to ourselves and others. Case in point, our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Moves that truly sealed our fate, not as leaders in human rights or democracy around the world, but being a violent global douchebag. After those wars, the perception of America in both Europe and the Middle East, which already wasn't good, fell even further. Also, because when France wouldn't join the war, we tried to make freedom fries a thing, and the world was like, stop trying to make freedom fries happen. It's not going to happen. In many ways, the Iraq f up got us a president who didn't vote for it and campaigned on ending the war. Obama understood how much international trust was lost in America after eight years of fighting. He knew American exceptionalism was a problem, even though he said he believed in it. I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. But what makes us exceptional is not our ability to flout 
international norms and the rule of law. It is our willingness to affirm them through our actions. God, he's so diplomatic and presidential. I almost forgot about things like the expanded drone program. Like, it briefly disappeared from memory, and in that moment, things were good. Obama came into the White House with a radical agenda on foreign policy by telling the truth about our foreign policy. While the United States has done much to promote peace and prosperity in the hemisphere, we have at times been disengaged and at times we've sought to dictate our terms. But I pledge to you that we seek an equal partnership. All the Latin American leaders behind him are like, Estás bien, hermano? Que chistoso. En serio? <laughs> but all that diplomacy was referred to by the right as Obama's apology tour. The world apology tour that Obama conducted. President Obama began his presidency with an apology tour. President Obama becoming the first sitting U.S. president to visit Hiroshima since the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb there. A lot of people debating today whether this was an extension of President Obama's uh, apology tour. It was considerably worse than a simple apology. It was a stagecrafted act of atonement. What? We're talking about f***ing Hiroshima. 140,000 people murdered with an American atomic bomb. Even Jeffrey Dahmer apologized for his crimes, and he ate people. Think about that. Obama was attempting to help America dip its toes into the idea that we should no longer be the world's police, nor are we the only economic superpower. Other economies, not just in Western Europe, but also BRIC countries, have grown faster than the U.S. economy and are on track to outpace us in the next 20 years. And they do natural resource destruction, foreign election meddling, religious nationalism, and gymnastics almost as good as us now. Ugh. We're in different geopolitical times, thanks in part to how poorly we manage our power. Now America doesn't call the shots, and that scares many people, especially the powerful on both sides of the aisle. Which brings us to Trump, because the monkey's paw always provides. Ooh, Fritos! Trump was elected on the premise that he was going to make America exceptional again. And yet his entire presidency is proof that we aren't. He's a strongman TV star who got help from a foreign government to get where he is. Welcome to the rest of the world, baby. And in some ways, he knows we're not special. Because like Obama, Trump is also honest about our foreign policy. But this time with a sociopath's lack of regret. It's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? We should have taken the oil. You wouldn't have ISIS if we took the oil. That'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Trump doesn't see America as a force for good in the world. And on the one hand, after so much righteous bombing, that's almost a bit of a relief. Until you look at how he's cozied up to our most unhinged allies and foes. Saudi Arabia, Israel, North Korea, Russia, and right-wing populists like Boris Johnson, Marie Le Pen, Roseanne Barr. Also, let's remember that for whatever isolationist talk Trump spewed, he's expanded drone strikes to five times times the rate of Obama, authorizing 75 of them in his first 74 days in office. But on that 75th day, in that moment, things were good. No, they weren't.
The problem is, what America does still matters to the world. And when we leave behind the better parts of American exceptionalism, the whole wanting to be human rights leaders and promoting democracy, there are real consequences. For example, when the Trump administration withdrew from the UN Human Rights Council, or said this about the UN's International Criminal Court after it floated the idea of holding the US accountable for war crimes in Afghanistan. The United States will provide no support and recognition to the International Criminal Court. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. That emboldened countries like the Philippines, whose President Rodrigo Duterte is under investigation for human rights abuses, to up and leave the International Criminal Court outright. Now, the ICC isn't perfect, but if we subscribe to the idea that everyone is a murderer and international law is BS, then we don't just have an inaction on human rights, we have no framework for it. So there's nothing to stop, say, Saudi Arabia from kidnapping and murdering a journalist, or Russia from poisoning two people in a UK park. And the only thing to stop Trump from declaring war on Iran is if Saudi Prince bin Salman wakes up with a tummy ache and is just like not in the mood anymore. And all Trump's chest beating is only further proof that American exceptionalism is gone. For a moment when a bully talks like that, people in other countries stand back, but it's more like the cartoon character that ran off the cliff, doesn't realize it, thinks everything's fine, and then... As sad as that is, it's almost comforting to know there's a blueprint for American politics right now, even if that blueprint is Looney Tunes. Let me guess, when we finally build the wall, we just paint a tunnel on it to injure all the migrants? It makes sense. Also, an anvil falling on Trump would be the perfect way to end this nightmare. <laughs> in free fall when it comes to what America's role is in the world. If we're not the Regina George of it, the aggressor or the savior, who are we? We really need to rethink what are our priorities. We remain with the institutional priorities of this quasi-imperial state of ours, which overthrows governments or puts sanctions or dictates to others what to do. But it's not going to work this way. Right. The U.S. can't be that asshole that won't come to the party unless we're the center of attention. Especially when that attention is insisting on busting out an acoustic guitar and singing Wonderwall. After all, we'll build that Wonderwall. That's my drink. Can we be part of a global community in a responsible way? Collaborate when it comes to things like climate change and refugee crises. Maybe it's time to let go of the monkey's paw of American exceptionalism and recognize the only thing we're exceptional at is not using the bidet. And that's not something to brag about. Thanks so much for watching Newsbroke. Thus concludes our breakneck season two. Yes, we have reached the end. And I hope you've enjoyed the ride. Thank you so much for watching and sharing. Uh, thank you to my producer and editor, Kate Elston, comedy writers, Matt Lieb and Johan Miranda, our social media producer and writer, Jesse Fernandez, our animator, Marissa Cruz, our incredibly talented researcher, photographer, prompter runner, Pablo de la Hoya, and to AJ Plus for having us back. Make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Franny Fio to see what I'm up to next. And who knows, maybe that will involve a season three. Before I go, I just want to recognize that this next year of American politics is going to be heinous and tiresome and stress-inducing, especially on social media. So even though I just told you to follow me on all those platforms and you should definitely re-watch Newsbroke, take a break once in a while. Thanks so much for watching and we will see you on the flip side. News broke.
with uh, Francesca Fiorentini taking apart the idea, unpacking the idea of American exceptionalism. And another facet of that belief, of that idea of exceptionalism, is that somehow America will escape the destiny of other great empires which crash to the ground. Somehow America is going to be the exception in history and go off and do whatever its rich masters want it to do, including wars, and then escape the consequences. Anyone who's read Greek tragedy or any good story about proud and arrogant people understands that there's a crash, there's an end to it. But uh, American exceptionalism says that there isn't. All right, I, I spoke earlier about the country and western uh, documentary by Ken Burns and the belief that a lot of people have that uh, country and western music is either apolitical or right-wing conservative, and I, I want to question that. Merle Haggard, the guy who did uh, Proud to be an Okie from Muskogee, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee, BS. Merle Haggard smoked lots of marijuana. The song was kind of a joke, but uh, this one is not a joke. It's about uh, his mother's hungry eyes and the poverty that they lived in. A canvas-covered cabin In a crowded labor camp Stand out in this memory I revive Cause my daddy raised a family there With two hard-working hands And tried to feed my mama's hungry eyes He dreamed of something better And my mama's faith was strong And us kids were just too young To realize That another class of people but us somewhere just below One more reason for my mama's hungry eyes Mama never had the luxury she wanted But it wasn't cause my daddy One more reason for my mama's hungry eyes. 
I remember daddy praying for a better way of life But I don't recall a change of any size Just a little loss of courage as their age began to show And more sadness in my mama's hungry eyes Mama never had the luxury she wanted But it wasn't cause my daddy didn't try For my mama's hungry eyes Oh, I still recall my mama's hungry eyes Having trouble falling or staying asleep? Pardon me, I hope you're not having such problems. Here's Loretta Lynn, singing actually about women's independence. The song was, was banned for uh, three years. Written in 72, wasn't released in 75. And it caused a great... A lot of record companies didn't want to touch it. It became Loretta Lynn's best-selling pop single of all time. You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the Show me the world But all I've seen of this old world Is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house Cause now I've got the pill All these years I've stayed at home While you had all your fun And every year that's gone by Another baby's come There's a gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. This old maternity dress I've got is going in the garbage. The clothes I'm wearing from now on won't take Yeah, I'm making up for all those years since I've got the p 
all these years you loved him And he knows it's true Cause what you want for your man Is what he's wanting to Hey guys Okay, that was Nina Simone um, with Blues from Mama. And uh, before that, we had The Pill. I want to talk a little bit about The Pill because it this is a song that did more to spread the news about the availability of birth control than anything else. Several, several people have claimed that uh, and told... Uh, Loretta Lynn that. Before that, we had Merle Haggard with Hungry Eyes. Our country and Western singers feel just as deeply as we do about the same things as we do. Um, they're not just, you know, a Donald Trump love society. Uh, Merle Haggard, in this case, is talking about the poverty that his family grew up with and what it did to his mother. So, Loretta Lynn and The Pill. The Pill is a 1975 country and western music song recorded by Loretta Lynn, one of the most controversial record of her career. It's a comic-tinged song about birth control. The song tells the story of a wife who's upset about her husband getting her pregnant year after year, thus keeping her from doing her work, from doing what she sees as her work in the world. She'd had six children, four of them before she was 20 years old. Song's frank discussion of birth control, something that was considered risque subject matter at the time, especially in country music, led to a number of country radio stations refusing to play it. The song received much publicity and airplay on the stations that would air it. But it stalled at number five on the charts when a Loretta Lynn record was guaranteed to be a top three hit. Nevertheless, it earned her more press and attention outside the country market than anything she had ever recorded before and ultimately became her highest-charting pop single. 
went to number one in Canada. Recorded in 1972 and held back by her label, the song was finally released in 1975. Okay, Lynn recounted how she'd been congratulated after the song's success by a number of rural physicians, telling her how the pearl had done more to highlight the availability of birth control in isolated rural areas than all the literature they'd released. Let's take a look. You whined and dined me when I was your girl. I'm tearing down your brooder house because now I've got the pill. I'm not just a breeder for you. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun and every year that's gone by another baby's come. You set this chicken your last time because now I've got the, hit, the pill. The old maternity. She says how the maternity dress she had took up so much cloth, but now the things she's going to wear are uh, mini skirts, and that won't take up so much material. Loretta Lynn claimed that, um, quipped that, she said if she'd known people, you know, that there was a pill at the time when she was getting pregnant every year, she would have eaten them like candy. And if people had told her that she couldn't have it, she would have stolen it. The pill and birth control give women control over their own bodies. And it's having to do with working women, okay, access to abortion. A rich, well-to-do woman, upper-middle-class woman can go and hire a doctor, give her an abortion. The problem is when women want to use federal funds... Anyway, Loretta Lynn, The Pill. And uh, we're quick running out of time here. Which, in a way, I guess is good. Means we've got a lot of... Uh, we've got a lot of material. Uh-oh, let's see here. So let's take a look at some labor history. That is uh, Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement. Okay. And we're talking about the early years, 1900, and the labor movement around San Francisco. Uh-oh. Turn that one off. Building on Sacramento Street, it was nearly ready for the lathers. But our building stood the wind all right. There's a carpenter's diary. I stopped by the Union Hall to pick up a straw hat to wear in the Labor Day parade. The parade was splendid. The paper said it was the largest ever seen in San Francisco. It took two hours and 40 minutes to pass a given point. These numbers are reflected in labor's political strength. Among the marchers is waitress Maud Younger, who helps the working women's suffrage movement gain momentum. 
The labor vote also keeps the Union Labor Party in power for much of the century's first decade. But city politics aren't a smooth ride for working people. Mayor Schmitz and most of his board of supervisors are implicated along with leading businessmen in a nasty bribery scandal. Soon, this is the least of the city's problems for workers and for everyone else. On April 18, 1906, San Francisco was first shaken by a huge earthquake and then ravaged by fires from ruptured gas mains. Over the next few years, union labor enthusiastically rebuilds San Francisco. You are glad that restoring the streetcar lines is a top priority because you need the work. Due to the emergency, workers and unions agree to suspend work rules and wage increases for a time. But when some bosses take advantage of the situation, labor conflict flares. Your union asks for an eight-hour day at $3 pay to keep up with sharply rising living costs. Patrick Calhoun, owner of the United Railroads, responds by locking you out. Perhaps he knows that in two days, he will be indicted for bribery in the spreading political corruption scandals. The first day of the strike, you are enraged to hear that strikebreakers have fired into a crowd of your brother streetcarmen, killing two. Peter York, a Catholic priest and union sympathizer, says, Where there is not justice, there cannot be peace. The Labor Council proclaims a boycott. Let every union man, woman, and child keep away from Calhoun's cars. Many middle-class suffragists refuse to support the Carmen. It's not their husbands, sons, and brothers on strike. You are heartened when working women, upset with their middle-class sister's lack of sympathy, show their solidarity with your cause by forming the Independent Wage Earners Suffrage League. You are also pleased with Mayor Schmitz when he rejects Calhoun's request to put police on the streetcars. You'd rather the police pay attention to the scab Carmen and their continuous violence against strikers and the public. But after six months, San Franciscans grow weary of walking and bicycling to work. You lose Schmitz when he is convicted in the Union Labor Party corruption scandals. Calhoun waits you out behind his private army of strike breakers. A political fight erupts between union factions over whether to support the scandal-ridden Union Labor Party. Your union gets caught in the middle, and your strike fund shrinks. Hungry, you are forced back to work at 10 hours a day in the old pay scale. You have been defeated by divisions in the labor movement, by the public taint spread over all unions by the corrupt Union Labor Party, and by the superior resources of capital. Six of your union brothers are dead. The Carmen's Union is crushed, not to be rebuilt for years. Politically, though, things improve. Building Trades Council leader McCarthy rids the Union Labor Party of its corrupt elements, promising a clean administration he's elected mayor in 1909. He faces an immediate challenge. San Francisco employers tell him that if the unions do not organize Los Angeles, competition from its cheap labor will bankrupt San Francisco businesses. Business leaders issue a warning, go south and organize Los Angeles or accept the open shop. Early in the morning on October 1st, 1910, explosions rip through the Los Angeles Times building. 
20 newspaper workers die. General Otis immediately accuses unionists of planting a bomb. Labor leaders point out that workers in the building had complained for weeks that gas fumes were making them sick. When Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara and his brother James are kidnapped by private investigators and thrown in jail, accused of the bombing, unionists widely believe that they are being framed. Radical attorney Clarence Darrow is persuaded by Sam Gompers to join Job Harriman on the McNamara's legal team. Contributions for the McNamara's defense pour in. Labor Day 1911 is declared McNamara Brothers Day by Gompers and the National AFL. With the assistance of San Francisco's strong union movement, a major organizing drive is launched in Los Angeles, bringing the number of union members to its highest point ever. The McNamara Brothers case helps stoke simmering feelings of injustice felt by working people. Emotions are further inflamed when at the urging of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, the Los Angeles City Council passes an ordinance banning picketing. Harriman defends scores of union members rounded up, often beaten, and thrown in jail by police enthusiastically enforcing the new law. In the midst of these events, Harriman announces his candidacy for mayor of Los Angeles. At a July 4th rally, he promises to repeal the anti-picketing law half an hour after his election. Harriman wants to convert the city's utilities and railways to public ownership, build public baths, swimming pools and libraries, provide free textbooks in the public schools. In a direct slap at Otis, he promises a publicly financed weekly newspaper. Harriman also pledges to investigate Otis and a number of his rich friends who had profited handsomely from construction of the Los Angeles aqueduct, now nearing completion. Just by coincidence, Otis and his partners owned the land on which the aqueduct terminated, suddenly making their desert holdings extremely valuable. As the primary approaches, John McNamara, while not himself a socialist, endorses Harriman from his prison cell, saying, There is but one way for the working class to get justice. Elect its own representatives to office. Even Sam Gompers comes to Los Angeles to urge Harriman's election. Harriman's campaign is headquartered in the Los Angeles Labor Council building, a sign of the growing closeness of labor and the socialists. G.W. Whitley, leader of the Afro-American League, endorses Harriman and runs as a member of his slate for city council, the only black candidate in the election. This is the high tide of the socialist movement in America. In 1911, Hundreds of socialists are elected to local and state office around the country. In 1912, Eugene Debs would receive nearly a million votes for president. Branches of the Los Angeles party are formed by ethnic groups, young people, and women who will be voting for the first time in a municipal election. The primary results become Otis's nightmare. Harriman, in an open primary, places first in a field of five. Labor leader Fred Wheeler receives the highest number of votes of any city council candidate. The newspapers go to red alert. The Express warns that a Harriman victory would signal the end of LA's prosperity. The Times swings its support to the runner-up, George Alexander, for the general election. Harriman assesses his rival. He never heard of a social problem and would not know one if he met it in the street. The Los Angeles Socialist Party, supremely confident, holds huge rallies for Harriman. Unfortunately, there is something Harriman doesn't know. Clarence Darrow.
Well, what happened here? realizes the McNamaras are guilty. To save the lives of his clients, he cuts a secret deal approved personally by General Otis. Four days before the election, without informing Harriman, the McNamaras switch their plea to guilty. Thousands of disillusioned voters change their minds about voting for a man associated with admitted bombers. On election day, Harriman loses. John McNamara later blamed Darrow for misinforming him. We were led to believe that the prosecution had evidence to convict some of the most prominent leaders of labor, and that only a confession by Jim and me would or could have saved them from the gallows. It was not to save our lives, but theirs, that finally constrained us to agree to a confession. Stunned union leaders and rank-and-file members all over the country distanced themselves from the McNamaras. Defense contributions dry up. James McNamara is sentenced to life, and John McNamara to 15 years in San Quentin. The Los Angeles Union organizing drive dies with their conviction. For a brief moment, the working people of Los Angeles could almost touch the twin possibilities of political power and unionization. But that potential falls victim to the McNamara's decision to settle labor's score with Otis with a bomb. Although socialists Fred Wheeler and Estelle Lindsay are elected to the city council soon afterward, the Socialist Party begins to decline. This occurs even as some of its demands enter the mainstream, like progressive laws creating workers' compensation and the eight-hour day for women. Job Harriman becomes convinced that the capitalist class is too strong to allow workers to take real power through the ballot box. He helps to form Llano del Rio, a socialist cooperative colony outside Los Angeles, which flourishes briefly. Years later, Eugene Debs reflects. If you want to judge McNamara, you must first serve a month as structural ironworker on a skyscraper, risking your life every minute to feed your wife and babies, then being discharged and blacklisted for joining a union. Every floor in every skyscraper represents a working man killed in its erection. Okay, Fred Glass. Um, history of California labor, a downbeat there, bad moment for labor. I want to play uh, this one about uh, let's see Five things you should know about racism. We had one about uh, okay, let's see. I wanted to play the one about uh, do all do all M Muslim women wear a hajib? And I don't have time. Uh, I just want to point out that 
a lot of our feelings about Muslims and about Islam in general are false or, or they don't exist, right? Uh, our own ignorance. But, um, let's see. Number four. go down come on friends and let's go down down on the picket line come on friends and let's go down let's go down let's go down come on friends and let's go down down on the picket line this is the beast signing off dollar they didn't work for, somebody else worked for a dollar they didn't get. We don't have a seat at the table where you work, negotiate the table You're on the menu. You never but never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Stay tuned now for Flat Black Plastic. With, uh, Scotto Walker and uh, hope to see you again next week to and everybody at Clifton Clifton Young sister, brother, everybody out there and Remember, 250 people who died today because of job-related causes in the United States. We expand that to the world. It's uh, 3,000 people, 3,000 working people Let's go down, let's go down, let's go down. Come on, friends, and let's go down, down on the picket line. Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Harris, Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or 
download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Why not make a donation? Streaming live the station. District of the Mission. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco. MutinyRadio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. And I started to do some thinking. And I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Looking big splits and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. I am a And I will cut the Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Nine months ago, a small, hand-wrought baton began a journey in John O'Groats, Scotland, packed tenderly into the crusty saddlebags of some adventurous next to her underwear and can opener. At present, the thing is several time zones away, but on its way to San Francisco next month, Friday, October 4th, we will be celebrating its arrival with a party at Moto Guild on Treasure Island. Join us in welcoming the baton and her bearers, the Women's Riders World Relay to Northern California, making its way back 
to Europe via everywhere from the furthest reaches of six continents, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Oceania, and on its way across North and South America, igniting a global sisterhood of inspirational women to promote courage, adventure, unity, and passion for biking. There'll be music, food, entertainment, neat bikes to look at, stories to swap, art to ogle, purchase, and people to meet. Everyone is, of course, invited to bring the whole family. Admission is free, but bring a few bucks for food, bevies, a raffle, and cool stuff from vendors. On Friday, October 4th, San Francisco will be celebrating the arrival of the Baton in California at Moto Guild on Treasure Island from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Come celebrate your love of the motorcycle and the women who ride them. For more information on the party and other awesome motorcycle-related tidbits, join the Dames Don't Care Motorcycle Collective on Facebook. For lots of info on the relay, visit womenridersworldrelay.com. Hope to see you there at Moto Guild on Friday, October 4th with Dames Don't Care. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44... For all of your listening pleasures, 
They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF Visual and Auditory Mind Control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you Clap, black classic. Flat Black Plastic Community Radio.fm. How can you say that you're not responsible? Thank you. 